Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Alzheimer's Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. There are two Texas counties along the border with Mexico where you'll find the highest rates of Alzheimer's in the U.S. In the Rio Grande Valley, between 20 and 25 percent of seniors in those counties are living with Alzheimer's or related dementias. And overall, Hispanic Americans are one and a half times as likely as white Americans to develop Alzheimer's or some other dementia. But most of the Alzheimer's studies in the U.S. haven't included many Hispanic participants. Fewer than 2% of the people in Alzheimer's research trials are Hispanic, even though they make up about a fifth of the U.S. population. That's why my guest on today's episode is so significant. This is 24-7, the podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. Dr. Gladys Maestri is a physician and neuroscientist, originally from Venezuela. That's where she grew up and went to medical school. Back in 1990, she was invited to this country to do research in genetics at Harvard. Later, she'd hold professorships there and at Columbia. Pretty impressive, right? But a few years ago, Dr. Maestri did something unexpected. She left the well-funded research hospitals of Boston and New York for South Texas to launch an Alzheimer's research center in the Rio Grande Valley. Because dementia is so prevalent there, it's a critical place to study brain health. And while most Alzheimer's research focuses on the biology of the disease, Dr. Maestri is turning to what she calls place-based research, and she hopes this approach among a largely Hispanic population will help her find answers that can help all families facing dementia. I had a long conversation with Dr. Maestri. She began by telling me why she was so interested in the brain. I think that initially I was very interested in the brain, but in a particular function, memory. I daydream a lot all my life since I was a kid. And I developed this habit of trying to think ahead uh, with vivid images. And when I realized that talking through my patients, with my patients about how they imagine things, I noticed they, many of them were not really interested in, in the present, in the real moment, but they were very vividly interested in the past. And, you know, somehow I related to them, like when I asked them, like, why do you close your eyes? Is the light bothering you? And they say, I can remember better with my eyes closed. So I, I really relate to that kind of vivid imagination of the past and also trying to imagine the future. That's a beautiful image. At the time, I already had my mind on the brain. You know, I already had visited uh, psychiatric hospitals and seen beautiful people that were just seem to be absent from their bodies or suffering, a lot of suffering. But I, I did something very, at the time, you know, without internet. I took a, you know, a journal from the library at the School of Medicine, 
And I was fascinated by an article about genetics and the brain. And I emailed the author, not even knowing who he was. And he was at Harvard. So at the time, I didn't know how to, how to really communicate very well in English. So I just put a picture of me, you know, staple it and say that I really enjoy and thank him for writing about it. You know, then we established a relationship. I mean, you know, exchange of letters. And he was one of the fathers of genetics of psychiatric disorders. And then he he offers, he said, you know, do you want to come to Boston? And I, I couldn't believe it. So I got the scholarship to come to Boston to Mass General Hospital. I never met him in person, actually, because he retired when I was there. But the Department of Psychiatry had um, an, a psychiatric hospital in a, in a close by town. And I went there and I saw the hospitals were so different from the psychiatric hospitals in Maracaibo. And I saw all the equipment, all the beautiful things they had, the programs. And, you know, it was really different. But I saw the same eyes of sadness you know, in the patients and in the families. And they did have a memory area for, for people with dementia. At the time, this was 1990s, still Alzheimer patients were seen as part of a psychiatric hospital. For the next few years, Dr. Maestri continued her research in genetics and psychiatry at Harvard, but something was missing. She wanted to know how the brain works, and she was ready to move on from Boston too cold and homogeneous for her, she said, as a Venezuelan. And things shut down at nine at night. So off she went to New York and a PhD program in neurobiology. I work at the Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in the neighborhood. Washington Heights is a very, you know, Hispanic, uh, Dominican and Puerto Rican. So for me, I, I love the food and, and I love dancing. But New York surprised her with its disparities in wealth and access to health care. She noticed it most clearly as she tried to recruit people in her Hispanic neighborhood for clinical trials. In Boston, it was very clear to my eyes, it was very clear there was white people, mm -hmm. you know, and they seemed to be quite educated. They seemed to be very well dressed and have some even have chauffeur with them. So they look like, you know, like movie stars or something mm -hmm. in my eyes at that time, you know. Then in New York, I saw people like myself and I saw, you know, people that were struggling even more than I, what I saw in Venezuela. So they come for different reasons. The, the rich people come because they want the best treatment, the opportunities to be in the trials. But the poor people, when they come, they want to come because they want to have access to something they don't have. So when I, you know, I went to knocking the doors to recruit people for the study of my PhD, I, it was easy to see that people were afraid of migration. They were afraid of, you know, law enforcement or, and they were very afraid of even having more depth after participation in the study. So I had to uh, understand the perceived barriers for research in, in the Hispanic population in the U.S. Barriers like being undocumented or believing that taking part in a medical trial 
would cost them money and leave them in debt. Dr. Maestri went from house to house, apartment to apartment in Washington Heights, to try to enroll Hispanics in her clinical research studies. But she kept coming across mistrust and fear. And she realized, we can't really have a full picture of why Alzheimer's or dementia develops if most of the people being studied are affluent, educated, and white. She wondered instead what we could learn about brain health from people living in majority Hispanic communities in the U.S. For instance, people who routinely speak two languages, does that benefit the brain? Or live in large extended families? What about other factors that could be bad for brain health? Poverty, or the additional challenges that come with being undocumented? Dr. Maestre started to think about studying dementia by looking at all the factors that can influence health, a place-based approach. So when the chance came to go to the border of Texas and Mexico, she took it. My feeling is I want to feel that I belong, but I cannot go back to my country. I am now here where I feel I belong. I belong because I can speak Spanish. I can mix it up the way I want it. You know, my mother can live with me because it's cheap enough. There is good weather. So To have a place being home is the way that you you see yourself, you find your identity. And I found that here. In Boston, I, I felt totally foreign, totally foreign all the time. In New York, I felt I was nobody. So I, I felt I belong. And when you feel you belong, you feel protected, you feel safe, you feel even loved you know, by the community. In the other sense, my rationale was, I have been always studying Hispanics. And I decided if I was going to leave New York, it was going to be, you know, for a place where for me being a Latina was an advantage, not mm-hmm. a disadvantage. I didn't want to be dressed in black, you know, all the time. <laughs> I want to be dressed with my flowers, my colors and you know, eating my food. And so from the scientific perspective, really it made sense. If I want to discover something, I need to use my strength. And that's what I found here. An institution, Hispanic serving institution, willing to support an initiative in Alzheimer's. But Dr. Maestre was unprepared for what she saw. What I never imagined is that a complete area will be so poor like this one. The counties here have been uh, designated as persistent poverty for the last 30 years. And something else she noticed in her new home in South Texas, she wasn't seeing many external signs of Hispanic identity. And she wondered about that. What does it mean to be living somewhere where your culture seems suppressed, where your own place in society can be challenged. I have the sense that Hispanics in Texas are not in power and Mm -hmm. they have been considered workers. So their voice, even though you find Hispanic last names among leaders in the community, you know, their values, the needs, and looking at the identity, I think that's missing. You know, when I walk in New York, in the Washington Heights neighborhood, I see 
the flags, you know, from Puerto Rico, from Dominican Republic. I listen to the music. You know, when I mm -hmm. go to San Diego, I can feel the sense of, you know, Mexico. Mm -hmm. In the valley, you don't have that. Uh, we have a lot of tacos, but you can see that the culture has been suppressed, at least. Even in San Antonio, you go through the river walk and you have a lot of sense of what the mariachi is, the colors, the, the skulls, but not here in the valley. Hmm. So to me, when I talk to people about, you know, their culture, it's inside the house, inside their home. They feel comfortable with, you know, the Virgin of Guadalupe mm -hmm. painting and all these things, but um, not outside and not within the city, not within the plazas. So Do you think that's partly due to the, you know, the idea of the border and of policing and sort of this contested identity? There is a militarized, you know, border, no question about it, because you see the, you know, all different law enforcement all the time. So it feels very safe, but it feels quite controlled. And why does that matter? Because I drive to go to nearby towns, perhaps hour and a half from here or two hours. And I see the police and I have nothing to hide. You know, I have my, I'm American citizen, but I get stressed out. Mm -hmm. And then you see another, and then you see another. And then suddenly, you know, somebody, they stop and say, where are you going? What are you doing? Show me your things. And like, I have nothing to hide, but, you know, imagine living with that every day. It matters for an older adult that's walking on the street, that the streets are not, are really car centric. Mm -hmm. So they, they can patrol. So they don't, it, it seems like the cities are being built to prevent social encounters. Like people do not conglomerate around in, in any of the areas. In fact, the map of the cities are really the grid it's it's very tight and in these areas there are very few plazas indeed you know very few almost so, the only plazas are in front of courthouses we have beautiful courthouses by the way but you know i i noticed that so i'm trying to to really correlate the history of the place and how the cities have developed with opportunities for aging well. I think people call this the kind of social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily asking a question about what what's a genetic profile, even though you teach genetics. You're you're asking much bigger questions about, I mean, for example, the presence of um, stress-inducing architecture, yeah. literally. Exactly, exactly. So People ask me, do you think there is a like genetic vulnerability among Mexican Americans? And I'm like, oh my God, you know, talk about health access, you know. I mean, really, I don't think there's gonna be one single gene that's gonna explain Alzheimer's, a new gene that nobody has found. We have a lot to do. By preventing 12 risk factors, we can prevent 40% of Alzheimer's cases. That's a lot. We can prevent 40% of Alzheimer's cases. How this 
play out in this in a place like this one uh, where health access is just so hard. You know, we don't have a county hospital. In How a that, county that's in a region that's 40,000 square miles? Yeah, we don't have in any of the four counties of the Rio Grande Valley a county hospital, a public hospital, or even a non-profit hospital. What happens? Where do people go? <laughs> well, there is an alternative system. Mm-hmm. If you have money, you you go to these for-profit and you go to Houston and San Antonio. But most regulars cross the bridge. Back to Mexico to get health care. You know, you go to the pharmacy for 10 bucks, you get the doctor and it's not a 15 minutes. You can talk at least for half hour. Mm. And if you can do it in Spanish, maybe, you know, the person with memory problems go back to, you know, the maternal language more often. So I think that being seen by somebody that can capture your nonverbal language is very important. You know, that can really read between the lines of what you are saying. It's very important when you are talking about how you think. And people with Alzheimer's are not articulate. You almost have to guess. And I think that that's very important. One of Dr. Maestre's goals at the Research Center is to establish partnerships to promote change in the community. That means making people aware that there are significant memory problems among elders and that there are solutions that can help. And she's talking to everyone. Schools, churches, community centers, food banks, museums even. Anywhere she can make herself available to answer questions and build trust. When we come back, we'll hear about one group of people that's been harder for her to reach. Men. You're listening to 24-7 from Texas Public Radio. The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support the 24-7 podcast. Its Biggs Alzheimer's Institute is expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while supporting everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Learn more about the free online programs and educational resources at uthealthdementia.org. Welcome to Exile, a podcast from LBI. The Leo Beck Institute, New York. Narrated by screen and stage legend Mandy Patinkin. When everything is taken away, then what? Each episode, an untold story from the archives of the Leo Beck Institute. First-hand accounts of Jewish lives in the shadow of fascism. Exile with Mandy Patinkin, a Leo Beck Institute, New York, and Antica Productions podcast. Down in South Texas, word about Dr. Gladys Maestri has spread. In little over a year, she's enrolled 300 people in her clinical trials. At the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, she set up the Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center for Minority Aging Research. It's the first of its kind in Texas. The National Institute on Aging, part of the NIH, helps fund the work. And despite that mouthful of names and acronyms, Dr. Maestri's approach is anything but bureaucratic. She doesn't look at the people in her trials as patients or study subjects. She tells them, 
You have things to teach us. Your experience is valuable and you can help other families. She now has a waiting list of people who want to participate and she shares her hopes with them too. For instance, she'd like to know more about the eye to see if changes in vision might be used to identify brain problems sooner. You know, when I talk about these things, people get excited in the town halls or whether this is in, you know, in a corner in a coffee with three people, they get excited. And I think it's very clear that we cannot help enough that we need to mobilize people to create really solutions for for caring, but also to support the abilities, the special abilities of people with Alzheimer's. Because they do see, they see things differently. And once they lose, you know, the fear, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, they actually could enjoy life in a very different way. You know, it's very hard for the caregivers, of course. Uh, But also, you know, there are good moments. Forgiveness and healing from the past, I see, you know. And sometimes it takes uh, such a hard disease to reunite. Um, for example, brothers and sisters. You know, people ask me, why Why do you think this is happening? Is, is this something that, you know, it's a message or it's a punishment? And really it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what can be useful for that family. And once we bring the conversation to the values of the family, then there is a, the exercise of reframing reframing history, past history. What are some of the barriers? I think I read somewhere that men are, Hispanic men are less likely to want to participate. So men are not into prevention. They, They really, in general, of course, but they don't like going to the doctor at all. They are very scared of needles and they think they are always busy. You know, like I mm-hmm. think because we had to go to the OBGYN doctor every so often in our lives. And then if we had kids, we have to go, you know, like the first year of the kids, we have mm-hmm. to go every month. It's not such a big deal. But this is uh, the best the way I can explain is that going to the doctor is at least as bad as going to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> also, men don't want that we find out that indeed they have bad memory. They they think they are pretending and that nobody is noticing. So the appreciation of the social role of a man in the family, it's very, very important. Many times I get the daughter saying, you know, don't tell that the diagnosis. And I say, you know, I'm just going to ask him if he wants to know. You know, And if he wants to know, I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear i'm not going to go and tell him the whole story i mean this is something that it's what we call developmental message we give one little and then next time we give a little bit more and try to be responsive instead of just giving a page just giving a page with all the information including the prognosis and this life expectancy you know that would be just terrifying and upsetting. I think if someone handed me a page and said, here's you, you have a lethal and uncurable condition that's going to take you down over time and render you helpless. Um, well, now we know you, that. They show up with that page here. They've already gotten that from yeah, someone? Many, 
Yeah. And when they realize that uh, we are trying to bring clinical trials and opportunities for prevention or support, either the two things are the, the main things they are attracted to. It's that is there a way in which this can be slowed down or prevented or because the caregiver need care partner needs support. So we are establishing relationship with groups of men through churches. I'm trying to, in fact, involve priests and pastors, so religious leaders in the area. So they get tested, they get the experience, so they can really talk about the experience of coming here to support our study. What do you tell people is the benefit for joining a study like yours? What do they get from it? The main satisfaction I've seen of participation is feeling that they are part of something that is bigger than themselves. They also, some of them feel that they are defeating the healthcare system in a way, mm-hmm. you know, like, like we are not charging them. Right. <laughs> and so it's, how is this possible? So, well, we wrote grants and we got money from, you know, NIH to do that and from the state. So they definitely a sense of belonging and the sense that we are here, you know, with these international standards to help, but we cannot do it alone. That we want the participation of everyone. Your best contribution is what is inside of you. So let us keep that legacy, you know, in different ways so we can understand well, you said something earlier. You said, what can, can you teach us? And that's yes. a really different framework. I'm not here as a specimen. I'm here to teach. Exactly. You know, my my tri- troubles or whatever can be put to a better use. And that way I'm valued, not just as an example of a disease. Exactly. No, to everyone, we have one session uh, where we give these little, you know, uh, details. So. Now you give us something and you give us an advice. Advise me, please. And uh, so they they have given me a lot of ideas of how to run better the study. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it's too cold here and you need a picture there or, or the bathroom is too far. Mm-hmm. Things like that. I'm like, it seems like nobody has time to listen anymore. And that's an, a very important value for me. The other value that's very important for me, it's, you know, it's music. I use music. I encourage them to sing out loud. And, you know, Mexican music has this little, you know, details. They, they kind of yell a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so they like to, to do things like that. And uh, so they... We organize party-like encounters, but the whole purpose is to talk about the song, the story, the lyric of the song, and to try to sing the song. And uh, so that also works quite nice, and I enjoy very much that. Could you just very shortly spell out what kind of um, physical things you are testing? Is it blood pressure or blood itself because i always think you can't diagnose alzheimer's until someone's dead by an autopsy so what is it physically that you're asking folks for so we have 
you know, several protocols, but there is one basic protocol that the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center requires from us, which basically involves testing the memory and other cognitive functions, brain imaging. That's very, very important. And the story, right? How this memory problem has affected your life. This is a critical point. Give me examples. You know, what happened when you go to a store? What happened when you are alone? And uh, what people tell you? So we obtain that uh, data and blood, of course, because we want to see the, the biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. But I'm very interested in the eyes, how we also collect information about the retina of the eye and the pupil, and we have different protocols for blood pressure. So it's actually one of the hardest ones because we need to put a, a blood pressure monitor in the arm that inflates every 15 minutes during the day and every oh, wow. minutes during the night. Yes. But this information is so crucial. A very big aspect of the way we operate is that we are committed to giving back the results that are clinically relevant to them or to their primary care physician if they want that. So looking at all these type of uses of and different languages and looking at the brain, the functional activity of the brain, I think we can learn how can we improve those areas that uh, perhaps have been deteriorated, you know, due to Alzheimer's or, you know, uh, traumatic brain injury or even diabetes. I want to ask one other topic related to this. I imagine for Hispanic families, Latin American families, family and multi-generational families are, are highly valued. And I would think in the Rio Grande Valley, there's no hospital. There are probably not many institutions for caring for people. And most of the care is done at home. Is that correct? Um, well, you know, if you come to Harlingen, you are going to see a lot of um, places for older adults. And they are mostly for non-Hispanic whites. Mm -hmm. Because they are cheaper than from other places. But you are right in the sense that uh, multi-generational families are the norm and keeping mom or dad at home it's almost a duty so which is very hard because really sometimes is the children the daughter or, or the son usually the person who cares and directly provide direct care is the daughter sometimes it's just not adequate it's not safe and I say, well, you know, that's that's okay. It's, you know, but let's keep thinking about the quality of the life of that family. And let's try to envision what could be better for her if she is active, not only just watching TV. The so, elder, you mean? Yeah. So you're trying to give a little training, it sounds like, to some of the family members that have to keep their loved one going. We are trying to to raise awareness and the readiness when, you know, it's no longer safe, when it's not really feasible, when the mm -hmm. daughter or the care partner, you know, their health, you know, is on the line or the kids or 
you know, we we try to raise the awareness, not to be at the moment of a crisis. You know, I've seen families dissolve. I've seen husbands saying, well, it's either your mom or me. So we don't want to get to that point. We want to get to a point where, you know, let's see what resources in the community are available for her to improve her day. Maybe start with a daycare program. What are the strengths of our community? Maybe there is another neighbor in the same block, you know, and we can take turns. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody in my neighborhood. So, okay, why is that? Right. There's no sidewalk. There's no way to get to somebody's house. You know, so we start thinking about that and um, and and helping, I think, through uh, motivational conversations to to find ways to change the current situation, to improve their reality, to try to meet them where they are uh, without judgment, but really trying to offer opportunities for change. And I say we always need opportunities for change. Always, always. Every person, you know, every family, we always can be a little bit better. You know, sometimes I say to the care partners, can you just be a little bit more cariñoso, meaning more tender? A little bit. You know, when I notice they are very cold, I say just a little bit. Like, what about putting the arm in the shoulder? You know, just feel the skin skin and skin with your mom can you do that or with your dad and my my dad died in 2018 and i i hope i could do that i said that to them Mm -hmm. because he was very you know distant in physically distant as you know hispanic man so i said to them i i i miss that i wish i had more memories of that so Always trying to give, to receive trust. Quite beautiful. I mean, come back to that word beautiful, but there is a great spirit that feels like it's animating your work. And that those aren't always the the words or the language that people bring to it. What can you teach me? How can you be more tender? Um, How can we listen longer, better, and, and also respect people? This is not, they're not treated as subjects. They're people. Yes. Is there anything you think that um, people not in the Rio Grande Valley ought to understand either about Alzheimer's and dementia or specifically about the science, like who we know about and what we know? I I would say that um, I'm very often in meetings and academic situations where uh, the Alzheimer patient is seen as even qualified as a vegetable. And I think that's very, very wrong among scientists. Um, And I think that the capabilities of Alzheimer's patients and the potential development of the capabilities of the brain in Alzheimer's, I think it's it's very much understudied. And I've seen people revive, uh, you know, like, I mean, really develop certain traits after they are engaged in social activities, after they dance, after they do physical, you know, activities, social, physical activities, emotional, you know, where they feel loved and respected. They don't lose that. The, these areas of the brain that are related to, to, to feeling and needing love 
are not very much touched by the disease, you know. You look at the, the brain and you can pinpoint here's memory, here is thinking, and these are clearly sensory motor integration. These are clearly affected by Alzheimer's. But when you look at the at the amygdala, which is one of the areas, the you know, the epicenter of emotions, it's just basically untouched for a very long time. The area where you process the music, you know, where you feel the tone, right? The rhythm. It's basically untouched for you know almost a decade. So I I think we need to to work with what is there and try to develop what is there. And maybe you know I had one one uh, daughter that said to me, "Well, the good thing about my mom is now she's happy. She never was happy, but she's happy now." So then, of course, not not every Alzheimer's patient. Uh, is happy, of course, but what I mean is that the potent, the goals for our interactions and the goals for treatments should not be to go back in time. What you want is to accept the differences at, and to move toward, you know, a different experience. So we have a school for caregivers. Do you? Yes, we have a school for caregivers. We initiated that in Venezuela and then in other countries. And now um, it's peer-led. It's having, you know, caregivers, experts sharing. You know, we prepare with them an outline and and then they share basically what worked for them. And, you know, through inquiry, uh, we have them share their experience. And it's very healing for them. Because that, I'm fascinated by that. The journey of, you know, entering a situation that nobody seems to be prepared for or really even ashamed of being in that situation so many times with so many conflicting feelings. So that's an opportunity for them. And at the same time, like, you know, at least that's useful. Elders, says Gladys Maestri, are the keepers of family memories. If her work can help them, she's helping all our families. Dr. Gladys Maestri directs the Alzheimer's Disease Resource Center for Minority Aging Research in Harlingen, Texas. We should note her work is done in partnership with researchers at the University of Texas San Antonio, which has been a funder of this podcast. 24-7, a podcast about caregiving, is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. We have editing help from Cindy Carpian. Dan Katz is Vice President for News at Texas Public Radio, and Joyce Slocum is TPR's President and CEO. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio.